The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. Hi, I'm PJ with ZooFit and welcome to Zoo Notable, where we read books that help change the world and share how we can use that wisdom to change our lives. And whether you're an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and the environment, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Now and again, I have been asked and have asked myself the obvious question, why animals? There's no simple answer. I'm curious about animals. They amuse me. They keep me company. They're nice to look at. Some of them provide me with breakfast food. I think I have the same response to animals that I would if Martians landed on Earth. I would like to get to know them and befriend them, all the while knowing that we're not quite the same ilk. They seem to have something in common with us, and yet they're alien, unknowable, familiar, but mysterious. Welcome to Zoo Notable. Today we're discussing the book I actually intended to finish at the beginning of the month for National Wildlife Day, but, you know, better late than never. We're discussing Susan Orlean's book titled On Animals. Now, Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a New York Times bestselling author. The most of her books and writing is about what is near and dear to her heart, animals. While she's never worked with animals, Orlean has a skill for writing the perfect story centered around animals and the people who love them and depend on them. She has reported on zoo animals, wild animals, animals as pets, animals in the military, animals we are familiar with, and animals as foreign to us as aliens. I appreciate her writing style and her anecdotes about creatures with whom we share this beautiful planet. I found some real subtle and irresistible gems in the book, and I cannot wait to share some of them with you. So let's dive on in with On Animals. And our big idea, number one, is being animalish. Quote, I was always a little animalish. I don't mean just as a child, since all children love animals and come by being animalish quite naturally. I don't just mean as a young girl, that golden moment when I, like millions of young girls throughout human history, fell into an adolescent swoon over horses and, to a lesser degree, puppies. I mean that somehow or other, in whatever kind of life I happen to be leading, animals have always been my style. They have been a part of my life even when I didn't have any animals, and when I did have them, they always seemed to elbow their way onto center stage. Now, I'm not exactly like Susan Orlean. I'm not a professional writer. I don't have any awards or best-selling books. I have not traveled the globe to write about animals, although I do travel the globe to visit zoos, and that's kind of the same thing, right? But what we do have in common is that we are both animalish. Animals have been an important part of both of our lives. Now, while I went the route of working with animals, Orlean went the route above writing about animals. Quote, when I began writing professionally, I always had a soft spot for stories about animals. These always turn out to be stories about people as seen through their relationship with animals as much as they were about animals. So why do animals have such a hold in our lives? I do not, I know that not everyone feels the way I do about wildlife. I mean, even my mom who basically raised me to be a dolphin trainer doesn't feel the exact way I do about animals. 
she doesn't like snakes and, you know, she doesn't like it when I sneak snakes into her home apparently either. She also doesn't quite understand my fascination with fish and doesn't know why I name even all my snails in my aquarium. But, you know, she loves my kittens as much as she loves hers. And she's always excited about the animals that I'm usually excited about at work, in, li in my life, or maybe even in the news. She would love Susan Orlean and her stories. Anyways, that was a kind of a small tangent. But it's easy to be fascinated by animals. We're all a little animal-ish. We are inspired by animals. We are nourished, some physically and others spiritually, by animals. We exist because of animals. Our worlds, as foreign as they appear to be, are interconnected. As Orlean wrote, Although may we think that the animal world is something separate from us, like the moon orbiting around the earth, it's more of a weave. I think of Doctor Who trying to explain time. It's a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. That's us and animals. There's no real separation. We are both co-inhabitants of the same place, looking for the same thing, to survive and thrive. The animal world is our world. Which is why, while Susan Orlean writes about animals, she ends up writing about us and our relationship with animals. Now, On Animals isn't a conservation book, per se. It's not a memoir on animals. It's not a training manual on animals. But it does demonstrate our lives interconnected with animals. And it's a reminder that we need animals, if not for our survival, for our enrichment, and so that we can thrive. So how are you animalish? How can you embrace that part of you and use it to make your world and the animal's world a better place? And big idea number two is how to leave your legacy. Quote, the mule's commitment to survival is interesting in a Darwinian context because mules, the hybrid result of mating a male donkey with a female horse, has an uneven number of chromosomes and are sterile it can leave no legacy beyond itself. I never thought about how mules and certain hybrid animals would behave considering they cannot pass on their genes to the next generation. Now, mules, ligers, wolfins, and what is called a growler bear, although it's an unknown if this particular hybrid is sterile, this isn't something humans breed them together, but Rather, the two species cohabitating more and more due to climate change, deforestation, and human encroachment on their territory, pushing them closer and closer to find appropriate habitats. But all of those are examples of hybrid animals, a cross of two different species that are close enough to breed together to create a whole new animal. The mules are the most common hybrid in the world, but still always produced by humans breeding the parents. And the point of this, though, is that mules can't have children, so they must leave their legacy in other ways. Orlean writes about one way is self-preservation. In an animal's rights nightmare behavioral experiment, several mules were forced to jump out of an airplane to see if they could parachute. After six fell to their death, the others blatantly refused to go anywhere near the door of the plane. And most other animals don't have the stubborn learning curve to put two and two together that quickly, especially when they don't have evolution to help them become those quick problem solvers. Not sure what Orlean reported was 
maybe a hair anthropomorphic and almost comical, but it did kind of sum up mules and their legacy. Many people have families so that they can carry on their legacy. Now, some people feel that if they can't have children, then what's the actual purpose of life? Well, perhaps mules can guide us in seeing that we can leave a legacy without children. What mules can't provide to evolution, they make up for in strength and usefulness. They're what military calls a force multiplier. A false multiplier is a factor such as better positioning or better equipment, which increases a person's potential. But this is more than just doubling our potential. Now, Stephen Covey mentions force multipliers in his books, book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You can check out the Zenodable for that great book. When he was discussing his sixth habit, Synergy, he writes, Synergy is the magical energy of working together where one plus one equals more than two. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mules often triple what troops without mules can do. Yes, yes, machines have replaced the plow and trucks have replaced the need for most mules. But in some circumstances, the mule is a better choice because they can often go where vehicles cannot. And as a living being, many people have come to love and form a trusting, mutually respectful relationship with their mules. Now, in the military, mules are still often used to carry equipment, weapons, and supplies. While they come and go in popularity, a mule's legacy isn't their imprint on evolution, per se. It's their imprint on human lives, making lives better and being force multipliers. Their legacy is one of synergy. Working with mules, one plus one equals more than two. Now, it's actually what I've started calling my mule legacy. It's what I leave behind that inspires others, not my genes being carried to the next generation. How can I synergize and become a force multiplier in this world to leave it a little better for the next generation? How can I inspire change in this world and in the lives of others? So my question for you is, what is your mule legacy? And how can you be a force multiplier? And can we start doing that today? Big idea number three is being objective helps win more. This is Keiko's story. Quote, the whale facility at Reno Aventura was small, shallow, and possibly too warm for an orca. There were also no other whales at the aquarium to keep Keiko company. He developed a droopy dorsal fin, which was symptomatic of nothing, but made him look very sad. Okay, I honestly couldn't help but include this idea, mainly because I was really so impressed with Orlean's ability to stay objective, keep to the facts, and not embellish the truth to fit a particular agenda. How Orlean feels about releasing Keiko, the killer whale who starred in the 1993 film Free Willy, is never made perfectly clear. She lets the reader decide if freeing the whale who spent more than 20 years in human care was a good idea or not. Her piece was also written in 2002, almost a year and a half before the star whale died. If you aren't familiar with the story of Keiko the killer whale, I actually recommend reading on animals because Orlean did a fantastic job of summing up the complexities behind the controversial and divided opinions on this particular orca. And I actually recommend Orlean's account because... and. 
any other media seems to be highly slanted towards either anti-captivity or how dumb it was to free Willie. When I saw the piece of Keiko, I initially rolled my eyes, but yeah, I continued reading. Most of what I've read from non-biologists often infuriates me, but Orlean surprised me with her objectivity. And with this piece, she helped me understand the importance of objectivity. With the controversial story of Keiko, I expected a fairly slanted piece about either freeing all orcas because it obviously worked for Keiko or writing about how horrible it was to try and force this whale to be free to fit some animal rights agenda, either again, anti-captivity or a pro-zoo mentality. Instead, what I got were facts. For instance, at Newport Aquarium in in Oregon, Keiko's skin cleared up. He gained 2,000 pounds. He tasted live fish for the first time since infancy. Just facts. Another one was the plan had always been to free, quote unquote, Willie, even though a captive killer whale had never been set free before. And then this, the annual costs for the project in Iceland were estimated at $3 million. If Keiko never learned to live on his own, the foundation could conceivably be looking after him for 30 more years at the cost of roughly $90 million. Now, the one part where Orlean begins to speculate and adds just a bit of her opinion is still about as objective as I've ever read about Keiko. Quote, skepticism is not the only impediment to moving Keiko to his ancestral home. Consider this. Icelandic fishermen view whales as annoying and gluttonous. The Icelandic government has asked the International Whaling Commission to allow regulated whaling again. And the nation received its first shipment of Norwegian whale meat in 14 years. Now imagine you're a representative from Free Willy Keiko Foundation and the Earth Island Institute, who is running the reintroduction program. You represent the Humane Society and Ocean's Future Society, and you have to approach Icelandic ministries for permits to construct a million-dollar pen in the harbor, as well as organize a fleet of boats, helicopters, airplanes, and a crew of scientists, veterinarians, and animal trainers for the nurture and eventual discharge of one Keiko, a.k.a. Willie, a delicious, edible whale. The insult of having a whale, especially whales being so cuddled, in a safe haven in Icelandic waters would not even be offset by the comfort of cold cash. Since Keiko would not be on display in Iceland, there would be no Iceland air travel packages to visit Keiko, no hotel revenue, no admission fees, no photo ops. Keiko would live in a huge pen in the harbor where he would be accessible only by boat, and the only visitors permitted would be his caretakers as he was slowly weaned from human contact to ready him for life among his brethren. Quote, the opposition from the Ministry of Fisheries was fierce. After a long series of complexities, Earth Island Institute finally got their plan and their permits approved. So even through all this, there still is no slant. There's no bias. There's no what they should have done or, but it was good for the Keiko or a red flag that the experiment wouldn't work. It's a lot of research facts and letting the reader decide for themselves. Again, just going to admit this. My mind is a little bit blown. And big idea number four is you are not alone and everyone has their niche. Quote, 
That there is a World Taxidermy Championship at all is something of an astonishment, not only to the people in the world who don't know how to use a dandy noser and soft and soft touch duck degreaser, but also to taxidermists themselves. Previously, an aspiring taxidermist could only hope to learn the trade by apprenticing or by taking one of a few correspondence courses available. In 1971, the National Taxidermist Association was formed and taxidermy schools began to open. In 1974, a trade magazine called Taxidermy Review began sponsoring national competitions. For the first time, most taxidermists had a chance to meet one another and share advice on how to glue tongues into jaw sets or accurately measure the carcass of a squirrel. Have you ever felt like no one could possibly understand you? Have you felt that you are alone in the world or that you're just meant to be ostracized or misunderstood your entire life? Well, first of all, let me remind you of Ralph Waldo Emerson who says, is it bad to be misunderstood? To be great is to be misunderstood. But what I also recognize after reading this section titled Lifelike in On Animals is that no matter how weird or different you feel you are, you are not. You are not alone. You just need to find your people in your niche. Now admit, I'm actually feeling this right now in this very moment, trying to get back into the zoo field. It's not going as well as I'd like. I am feeling like perhaps I don't have a particular place anymore or... Perhaps what I can offer is not useful. But then I read about taxidermists and a world championship with thousands of people attending. And this isn't just people competing either. This is an opportunity to take workshops, learn from other taxidermists and experts in the field, and to network with taxidermists. I am not saying that taxidermy is weird, but how many of you thought there would be a big enough community to hold regional and state competitions throughout the year, or that it was a big enough industry estimating $570 million annually? I just never thought of that. It made me realize, no, there is a place for me, not necessarily taxidermy, but that I am not just some unique unicorn who is fated to be alone and desolate. And that even if I'm one in a million, there are 8 billion people on this planet, which means there are at least 8,000 other people just like me. But I do meet people once in a while who appreciate me for what I do and who I am. Last year, I presented free workshops to zookeepers in celebration of National Zookeeper Week. I had four zoos participate, but I didn't hear from anyone that I, like, you know, changed anyone's life. I just thought that more or less did me a favor in attending my talks, and that was about it. That is until last week when I attended my very first in-person zookeeper event since the pandemic. It was a fundraising event for rhino conservation, and tons of zookeepers I had met virtually over the years were in attendance. When I introduced myself to a couple new faces, their eyes bright brightened and their faces lit up. Oh my God, you're with ZooFit. And one of them elbowed their significant other. This is the one I was telling you about last year, the one with the fitness program. I had no idea. But then you go back to the taxidermist. Now, if there is a place for thousands of people who create stuffed animals, which I had no idea was so big and organized, 
then there is a place for you and there is a place for me. We just need to keep going while we search them out. They are probably closer than you realize. And big idea number five is conservation's long game with the lion whisperer. Quote, one day several years ago, Kevin Richardson arrived at Lion Park for work and went to look in on Meg and Ami, his favorite lionesses. They were gone. He tracked down the manager who told him that Meg and Ami had been sold to a breeding farm. Richardson managed to arrange for their return. Once arrangements were made, he decided to go retrieve the lionesses himself. He was shocked by the sight of hundreds of lionesses crowded into narrow corrals like cattle. It was his moment of reckoning. He finally understood that cub petting was the root of the problem. It provided financial incentive to breed captive lions, and it produced scores of semi-tame cubs that had no reasonable future anywhere. Richardson knew that he was a part of a system that was dooming endless numbers of animals. He wanted no part of it anymore. Now, Lion Whisperer is a tale of Kevin Richardson, who runs a lion facility in Africa. It's not exactly a rescue because his lions will never be released into the wild, nor does he actually accept more lions in need. Richardson wants to become obsolete, an unnecessary part of the landscape. He doesn't advocate for lions in wildlife parks that allow visitors up-close encounters. He's not interested in breeding more lions, even with a hands-off approach to keep them wild. Richardson wants to make the public more aware of lion conservation issues by not having lions. See, his story started many years ago when he worked at Lion Park that allowed visitors to pet and hold baby lions, walk alongside young lions, and drive their cars and observe grown lions. However, the ratio of baby lions to adult lions was exponentially lopsided. Now, Arlene, the skilled writer that she is, is has a way better at telling the story than I am, so I will let her take the wheel here. The safari park at Lion Park was very popular, but it was a distant second to a park feature known as Cub World, where visitors were allowed to get out of their cars and enter an enclosure where they could hold and pet lion cubs. Once they get to be around six months old, though, lion cubs are too big and strong to be held. At Lion Park, these adolescents would graduate to being part of the Lion Walk, where, for an additional fee, visitors could stroll beside them in the open. By the time the lions are two years old, however, they are too dangerous for any such interactions. Every now and then, a few of the aged-out cubs might join the park's quote-unquote wild pride. But the real problem is a mathematical one. To keep the very popular cub world stocked, you need lots of cubs. Then they grow up, and in a short amount of time, there are more adult lions than the park can accommodate. Now, at first, Kevin Richardson didn't give much thought to what, was, what would become of the lions that had aged out of Cub World and the Lion Walk and weren't added to the park's adult pride. He says he remembers someone mentioning vaguely that surplus lions were sent to a farm nearby. He missed that he let naivete and willful denial keep him from pursuing the subject further. One thing is certain, none of the cub world animals or any cubs from similar petting farms were successfully introduced to the wild. Because they had been handled since birth and hadn't learned hunting skills, these lions were not fit for living independently. What's more, even if they were somehow able to adjust to a wild life, there was nowhere for them to be released. 
South Africa's lion, wild lions live in national parks where they are monitored and managed to ensure that they have sufficient range and prey. Each of the national parks already has many lions as it can comfortably hold. There is simply no spare room at all, no space for more adult lions. The situation underscores a troubling reality. Taking care of Africa's lions shouldn't focus on increasing the lion population, but instead accept that there are probably too many lions for the dwindling habitats. Lions are in no short supply. Space for them to live in the wild, however, is. Some of the surplus lions from petting facilities like Lion Park end up in zoos or in circuses. Others are sent to Asia, where they are slaughtered and their bones are used in folk medicine. Many are sold to one of the 180 registered lion breeders in South Africa, where they're used to produce more cubs. The rest of the extra adult lions from places like Lion Park end up as trophies in commercial hunts. Close to 1,000 lions are killed in such hunts each year. The majority of the hunters come from the United States. Now, once Richard had his experience of his favorite lionesses becoming a part of the breeding problem in Africa, he changed his ways. Now, he lets his lions run as free as they're able to on the land within a sanctuary reserve. Richardson doesn't allow many visitors, but he does educate the public about the plight of the lions to help conserve the species, not by breeding them, but by advocating more land and space for them. Now, here's the actual lesson I garnered from this story. A long time ago, I probably would have scorned Richardson. How could he not have known? But, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And conservation, while it is urgent, will bide its time for the right person. I like to think that Conservation Universe saw that Richardson would be a great ally in spreading the word about lion conservation. But he needed to be invested personally. Now, this is no different, in my opinion, than someone visiting a zoo or marine life park solely for the entertainment value, but then having an experience or an awakening that calls them to protect and preserve the environment. It could be an elephant or an elephant shrew that changes their perception. It could be touching a shark or simply listening to a wolf. I think the universe, and particularly the conservation universe, has a plan for each of us. Yes, even you, the person listening right now saying, yeah, what can I do? You just, you keep living, you keep learning. You make mistakes. You learn from those mistakes and then you make new mistakes. You don't know what you don't know. So when you make an error or when you discover a new way of doing something such as reducing water usage or eliminating plastic packaging or cutting out palm oil or so many other ideas for conservation, then you adapt. It may take a little trial and error, but you won't get it perfectly on the first try, but you keep on keeping on. This conservation's long game that will embrace you along the way. And there you go. Those are my thoughts on Susan Orleans on animals. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea struck you most profoundly? And again, how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? If this new notable piqued your interest, you can find on animals at most libraries on audio or with physical book. You can also check with your local bookstore for a copy. I do advocate supporting local businesses whenever possible and keep learning, keep rocking your practices to make the world a better place for you, your community 
and the animals we share the planet. I don't actually have any quotes to close this out today, so I'm going to send you off with my favorite saying, keep eating clean, living green, training positive, taking care of ourselves so we can take care of the planet and each other. Today, tomorrow, and forever. I'll catch you all next time. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you, everyone, for indulging me on my trip down memory lane and a wonderful book about dolphins. You can find Dolphin Journey on Amazon. The link is in the description down below. This month is not just World Oceans Month, it's Pride Month. And at ZooFit, we are all part of the same pride. So next week, I'm exploring a wonderful book called Queer Ducks and Other Animals talking about queer representation in the animal kingdom. Now, if you want more Zoo Notable goodness or more of ZooFit, you can join our pride over on Patreon, connecting with other ZooFitters, get bonus content, and even previews of my new book, projects, and programs. I keep on keeping on letting stories and the animals take you on adventures to better yourself and better the world. Take care, and I'll catch you all next time.